My name is Joel DeHart, and about 25 years ago, I had an experience where I was working in Afghanistan, and I was taken captive and held for a period of six months. Muslims, Christians, and, and the, the zombie. zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> And this is Howard. And I'm Trevor. And I don't know about you, Howard, but I am excited about the show today because of that intro. I'm compelled. We are privileged to have people like Joel DeHart come in and share their story in the studio. So before we get into Joel's story in great detail, you got to understand something about his background. He's not uh, your typical American, I guess you'd say. He yeah. was born and raised in Pakistan. His parents were actually missionaries. So my father was uh, a keen traveler, so he would take any opportunity he could to go to new places, and he took the family along. We went to Kabul, Kandahar, and then flew to Iran, and that was when I was in just finished third grade. Then my brother and I um, traveled in 1979. We traveled by road through Afghanistan, through Iran, all the way to Europe. So that was the, the era when lots of people were traveling. There were lots of Europeans on their way to Kathmandu and going back and forth. Yeah, so obviously he's not a typical kid growing up. Right, not the typical childhood. I mean, I have a third grader. Uh, Disney was about the most exotic <laughs> thing that we've done here in the United States. So in that sense, Joel in some ways feels that he was born and bred for this experience. As a, as a child growing up, I'd always had a fascination for... Afghans, Pashto speakers, because we would see them often in Pakistan. And I just felt like this is something that God had prepared me for. So why all the Afghan speakers in Pakistan? Well, when you have uh, Afghanistan as sort of being the buffer between the spread of communism and the Soviet invasion into Central Asia, you had all of these refugees fleeing outside of Afghanistan and going to places like Iran, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and they're all fleeing for their lives and looking to start new lives until the government can settle down in Kabul. So as a kid, he's growing up in Pakistan, but then he gets to meet all these Afghan refugees that are coming in from the border. And he's exposed to all this culture and these ideas and these thoughts and this language. Right. And he hopes one day that he's going to get to actually go to Afghanistan and work with these people. And that day comes because he knows the language, because he knows the culture. He gets to work as a translator for a veterinary clinic that's doing a vaccination program in Afghanistan. For two weeks, we'd been going around to different villages, but we knew this was our last day. So we planned one village and going from house to house, doing some vaccinating and we were kind of gathered back to our vehicle when suddenly we saw these two jeeps come over the hill and they were just going so fast that it was unusual. So we wondered who these guys were. But then when they jumped out with their guns and stuff, then we knew something was... This wasn't the way things were supposed to be. So something had gone wrong or we didn't know what was happening. But it... We didn't really have time to think. They just said, okay, you guys hop in the Jeep. It's immediately obvious that these guys mean business. Right. This was not the way it was supposed to be. And apparently word had gotten out that this was their last day and they didn't want them to leave. According to Joel, they have no idea at this point why they are being taken captive. We, we drove for several hours, parked the Jeep, and then they said, come on, let's walk. We're going. So while we were walking, then things started coming out because they said, so we know you guys... 
you guys are being unfair. You're helping some people and not others. And this is why we're taking you. Yeah, I was scared. I mean, um, I'd never faced something like this before. And it just took a while to get used to the idea that now we weren't in control of our circumstances, somebody else was. I can't even imagine what that would feel like just on the last day of your trip. I mean, you and I have been on so many trips. And just to know that on the last day, we weren't coming home and we didn't even know when that would ever happen. But still at this point, I think Joel's optimistic that this is going to be short-lived. I remember early on, I thought, okay, they've taken us now. Certainly, uh, our local friends will gather together and negotiate something and we'll be out of this in a matter of hours. It is interesting that Joel automatically thinks that his local friends would be able to help him. It just shows how important community is and, and even the safety uh, that his relationships uh, affords him. Yeah, but unfortunately in this situation, there are no such negotiations and it isn't a couple hours. This short-lived captivity for Joel is going to turn into a six-month process. There were soldiers with us with guns and it was probably a group of about 10 people. So we all walked for several hours and of course we had no clue where we were going but we ended up at the home, uh, a small home of one of the people who was loyal to this particular commander and then we went in. Um, They prepared a dinner for us, went to sleep, next morning got up early, had breakfast and then headed off walking for a couple hours and then we started climbing because the soldier's base was at the top of a mountain. So there are two things that hit me about this. Number one, he's made dinner. <laughs> like I And just, breakfast. Right. I'm just imagining they're sitting around eating dinner. I'm like, he's a captive. You know, him and Doc are captives. The second thing that hits me is that why didn't they drive or fly? or I mean, they are just going to this remote place and they're getting there by foot. Uh, they're walking because the terrain is just too rough. There is no road going to the top of this mountain where the military base is located. It's for strategic purposes, right? You're just on the top of a mountain. But when you ask Joel about the day, like what he remembers, he remembers the beauty of the sky. He remembers the beauty of the mountains, the temperature. He actually has pretty pleasant memories of that day, taking a long walk to the top of the soldier's mountain. And it wasn't even just the geography or the scenery. Uh, he actually mentions how kind the soldiers were to him. The ordinary soldiers, and they were just curious and very friendly, like all Afghans are. So they treated us very well, and we talked, and they would ask us things, and and they weren't in favor of what, I mean, of kidnapping and taking, but they said, we just have to do this. Okay, so not all of the soldiers were that kind. Some of them did steal his things, and it was pretty frustrating. But all in all, he describes them as very kind, and uh, most of them as pretty good Muslims. However, Joel does take an interesting technique at trying to negotiate his release. For the first month or so, I had no books at all, but they had a copy of the Holy Quran. So I know some Arabic, and I managed to find the verse that said something related to this, like, you shall not take people captive. Okay, needless to say, it didn't work. Um, In fact, Joel and Doc, they don't spend very long at any one particular place. We were taken around to different places so people wouldn't know where we are. That was the idea. So at night they would come and, okay, suddenly you're going. Take us another place. And one of these places, the commander sat down with us and he said, okay, 
If you don't pay money, you're never getting out of here. We could do, we could kill you, we could do anything. I mean, this was really the only time he mentioned killing. Another option that the commander comes up with is turning Joel over to the communist government as a spy, a CIA spy for the U.S. government, essentially. And uh, just just to be clear, uh, Joel does kind of fit the bill. Yeah, he wouldn't be the first missionary to be accused of being a spy. I mean, think about it. He knows the language. He wears the clothes. He knows the culture. Uh, he speaks multiple languages. He knows the land. He's got the nice beard. <laughs> He really does look like a local. And the whole concept of a government agent sharing his faith isn't that strange. So this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us as Americans because of this whole concept of separation of church and state, right? Not so much in Islam. Can you imagine uh, one of our police officers trying to witness to us while they pull us over for a ticket? That would be on the news that night. (laughs) Um, But in this context, you have this battle of ideas, right? You have the communists coming down with atheism, and then you have the Muslims there and their beliefs in Islam, and then you have the Christian, the CIA, in Afghanistan that are going to begin funding this war against the Soviets. And... It's not that weird to think about faith being intermixed in all of these things. And so the kind of conspiracy theory of CIA and missionary, it really kind of makes sense. People think that anybody who lives in Pakistan or Afghanistan is either CIA or he's, or his government is paying him so that he can convert people. Because they perceive that, um, I mean, government and religion are, are together, so... The West are Christian countries, and they must have an agenda to convert people. Well, eventually word gets around that uh, two Americans are being held hostage. And the villagers, they're not okay with that, and they take action. To this day, I don't understand why and what happened, but just a whole group of villagers comes to the house where we were being kept, and they release us. It was very confusing. But they just kind of forced, they were saying bad things to the driver. Why did you do this? And you took these guys, they're our guests, they're helping us, and you shouldn't do this. And So the villagers come in, and they're rescued by the villagers. They're taken to the local mosque, they have dinner. Yay! They wake up the next morning, breakfast. Yay! And all of a sudden, here comes the commander with about 30 people, guns raised, rocket launchers. They're not going home. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you You want to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. That was the lowest point. Not only because we had had these hopes and they were dashed, but because from that point they decided, okay, let's, one commander will take Dr. Bill, one commander will take you. So we were separated now, alone. At least the first days when we were together, we could talk together, pray together, you know, commiserate together, uh, tell stories together. And then from then on, it was okay, just like, it was, for a while, for, even for me, it was like solitary confinement. I was just locked in a room. And I felt like all hopes for being saved have now vanished. Trevor, you and I have been together for a long time. 
I kind of feel like I'm being proposed to right now. <laughs> Sorry, let's keep going. Go ahead. Go. That was a, that was a moment. I'm blushing. There, there are these times when uh, we needed each other, and then we were there for each other. Howard, I honestly, when he was talking about this, I imagined you and I in captivity together, and I'm thinking we could survive. Yeah, because there's nothing that can compare to having a brother encourage you when you're going through the hardest time. And when both of you are in it together, you're in it together. And uh, Joel lost that. Yeah, I could understand why he describes it as solitary confinement, but it wasn't going to remain that way. The home that he was taken to, well, it's not any home. It's actually the commander's family home. He took me to his house because he thought that would be the safest place where I wouldn't run away and nobody would able to be able to take me away. And I remember many times in the house listening at night and hearing uh, rockets and bombs and things. So there was, this was a time when um, Mujahideen and the Russians were fighting it out. There was war going on in the area and he... I think the commander was more concerned that some people from an opposing party just come in and by strength of arms just take me back and then he doesn't get any money. The thing that hits me is how desperate of a situation it is. I mean, there's bombs and, you know, there's war going on. And at the same time, there's, uh, you know, other villagers, not villagers, what, clans, war clans that could come and take him. And uh, the commander's like right in the middle of it and he takes him to his house. Yeah, I I mean, I've never thought about taking anyone captive but if i did i can assure you i wouldn't take him to my home i don't think my wife would be okay with that <laughs> that's all i could imagine like what would it be like you bring somebody home it's like hey this guy's a prisoner of war uh keep him here but the family actually is pretty amazing and god begins working in joel's heart and in the heart of this family there were some times when god very specially helped me not to be angry and one time that i was this lying on the roof of the the soldier's house there and I felt like God was doing an operation and putting love in my heart for the commander instead of this anger because I was kind of blaming him for everything that had happened and if he would only let me go. I, I can resonate with his frustration with the commander. Uh, more than frustration, I yeah. would probably have hatred in my heart. No, no, I would have hatred in my heart. And uh, to hear him speak of what God is doing in his heart is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I think Joel would be the first one to attribute that to to God, just to say that he was changing his heart. And thank God he did, because he's about to have a much deeper relationship with this family than I think he ever anticipated. The commander's brother became a very good friend. And he said, forget it, the, the commander's away. Come down and eat with us. So, and this is quite rare in Afghan culture. So there was I, there was the commander's brother, his wife, who had just had a baby, was breastfeeding, and the little kids who had become my friends, and there we were eating together. Well, for me, it was just such a comfort to have people caring for me and thinking about my welfare. And I just took it as from God that this is, even though the commander has his own agenda, his family cares about me. All right, this is this is a little bit mind-blowing. He's becoming like a part of the family. Yeah, and I think that was really interesting that he said that uh, this wasn't even normal for uh, Afghan families. Right, for him to be that close. Right. And, I mean, and let alone throw into the, the mix that he's, in ho- he's a hostage. Right. I, I'm going back to if I were to take someone captive, I wouldn't bring them home. Right. I most certainly wouldn't invite them down to have dinner and hang, hang out, out with my kids. kids. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, weird. 
He sees it as God's providing comfort through his captor's family. But sadly, uh, that's not going to last. Right. Eventually, they come and explain to him for his own safety, he has to be transferred to a military base. We asked Joel to read a portion from his journal from that day. So they said, we want to send you to the Pai Ga, the military base, for a few days in order to ensure your safety. There's a war going on now with the other groups. Many soldiers have left this town. There are not enough people here to properly guard you. What do you think? Do you agree to go? So I said something like, I've come to like it here, I replied. I like the family, the atmosphere. I've come to know the people here. You know that I don't like being around soldiers. So no, I don't want to go. But I'm your captive and I have to do what you say. Uh, in that comment, I mean, obviously he wasn't giving um, inflection. Uh, but I hear like a real humility. Like, you know, just, just laying this down to, to the feet of, of God the Father who's going to take care of him. Well, he saw it as mercy that his captor's family came and at least asked. They didn't have to ask. They could have just, like any other time that he had been moved, just come in and said, get in the Jeep. But they had come to love him and he had come to love them. You see this real status change where now they're starting to look at each other a little bit differently than they used to. Right. It's no longer captive and captor, but it's like they've become quite good friends. A complicated relationship, to say the least. (laughs) To say the least. Needless to say, this is discouraging, right? He's now going from this family to a military base, but he does get some encouraging news right about the same time. Turns out that uh, his companion, Doc, has been released. Well, first, I didn't believe it, because people tell you all kinds of things. But then it came again and again, and somebody else said, oh, I heard on the radio, on BBC, that he's been released. So then I kind of... And I was, more than anything else, I was just happy because I knew he had, he had had such a tough time. And I was just thanking God that he's able to go home. All right. Gut reaction, Trevor. I got to be honest, man. I'd be thinking, what? Howard got released? <laughs> why, why didn't I get released? I like how I got added into this. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I would have felt the same way. And, you know, like, I'm sure there would have been like a, a little glimmer of like Christianity in my heart. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, good for him. But uh, I'd I'd be feeling negative feelings probably. Yeah, but Joel explained to us that he knew the language. He knew the culture. He enjoyed the food. And so Doc being released wasn't a discouragement to him so much as it was that he no longer had to worry about how he was doing. We did ask Joel if this gave him hope that he would be released. I was too hurt from other times of hoping and having my hopes dashed that I didn't want to believe anything anymore. There were times when I was really, really down and depressed, and I would think, I can't, I can't last another day. All right, I really appreciate Joel's honesty here. Yeah. He had fallen on some hard times. <laughs> More than fall, fall on hard times. I mean, I think that this is an emotional roller coaster that this guy's been on. Right, and so rather than kind of being stuck there, he does this really, at first it seems kind of odd. He sees blessings in really small things. And I thought that was so interesting when we were interviewing him. I I just thought like how difficult it would be when you're in that dark time to actually see glimpses of God. Yeah, well, it turns out for Joel, the glimpses of God become even more obvious. For instance, he's missing a button on his shirt. And then the same day that he loses his button, somebody gives him a sewing kit with two buttons. Yeah, a button. We're talking about a button here. Uh, His favorite sweater was missing a zipper. And then while they were in a local village, 
he asked, do you happen to have a zipper? And they happen to have the perfect size zipper to fix his sweater. Yep, moving on to a zipper. <laughs> right? And at one point he sees uh, a bar of soap where he had run out of soap and then he was provided one as a gift from someone or his ballpoint pen had run out of ink and he receives another one. So while I'm thinking, what are these things? These things are meaningless. To him, these things are life-giving. And of course, for a Christian, the one thing that is the most probably life-giving in a situation like that would be the Word of God. Right. And in the beginning, he didn't have a Bible, but Doc did. And so he had copied down chapters out of the book of Philippians. This, this is like, book, er, yeah, this is like a, a early a church, underground right? church. Yeah. We've only got one Bible between us. So he copies down the book of Philippians. And it's that book that is so important to him. At the end of chapter one, where it talks about, Paul talks about his suffering and his affliction that had a greater purpose, that God was using it for something bigger. I really identified with that. And then chapter 2, where it talks about Christ and his condescension and his suffering and then how God exalted him after that. Just very comforting for me that God has a plan. Sometimes when I put my kids to bed at night and I'm telling them to read the Bible, they give me this look. And I get it. It's kind of like this, okay, how does this pertain to me? I don't really understand what I'm reading. How is this like so important? Like how you keep emphasizing the importance and how it changed your life. I just, you know, and I, and I want them to see. You want them to go into captivity is what you're saying. <laughs> I want them to see it like Joel sees it, you know. But you don't want them to go to captivity to have to see it that way. I understand what you're saying. It's kind of like complicated. You want them in captivity, but you don't want them in captivity, you know. I hear you, man. But, and you know, he's being blessed. He's got these sort of comforts from these small glimpses of God and the, and the Word of God. But he's also keenly aware of the fact that winter is quickly approaching. And if it hits winter, all of the passes out of this area of Afghanistan, they're going to be closed, and he's going to not get out when he wants. That area is pretty much cut off. After it snows, there's not much going back and forth. It's very tough to travel. So I had thought that it might not work this year. I might, If I can't get out now, it might be the spring when the snows fall or later or who knows. With all this going on, Joel's not the only one under strain. Right. The commander himself is realizing that his plan is falling apart. There is no ransom. He's losing favor with soldiers. He's losing favor with the villagers. And they have to come up with another strategy. But the commander's idea is, well, maybe uh, I could offer you a job. <laughs> what I remember is... He said, okay, you're an English teacher. You're teaching English to the soldiers now, so why don't you just stay here? We'll, we'll take care of everything you need, and we'll help you. And, and in his mind, I'm sure, it was just another way that he could, he could be responsible for uplifting the community and doing something good, and it'd be good for him. That is what you call a Hail Mary pass. Right. Nothing is working. Uh, go big or go home. But Joel's response is uh, actually quite cordial. I told him, thank you very much. But first, let me go back to my family and free. And then if, if of my own volition, I come back, that's one thing, but not by force. If I was Joel, I would be offended. It would not be a cordial answer. I would be like, really? How dare you? How, how dare you? Right. Despite the commander's uh, best efforts, Joel is released, and he's released before the winter. It's January 4th, and he gets to return home to Pakistan to be with his family. But that's not where his relationship with Afghanistan ends. Right. Even though he was held captive, he did still love the people. And a little more than a decade later, he returns and spends about 11 years 
as an English teacher on his own volition. All right, those of you that want to know more about Joel's story, you can find his book. We'll put it in the show notes. It's called The Upper Hand. We're actually going to conclude this show with an original piece of music that Joel composed while in captivity. If you enjoyed the show, please write reviews on iTunes uh, and spread the word because it's a new show. We want people to listen. We'll see you next time. God has the upper hand, no matter what the plans of man. He rules and reigns above and does his will. Just trust his sovereignty, then you'll not discouraged be, but live each day with joy and worship him. So God gave me that while I was in the soldier's base, and I would often sing it and remind myself that really... It wasn't the commander who was controlling my destiny, it was God.